But then I, I believe that in, in a soccer game that they analysed, um, and I'm not saying this is necessarily true in rugby league or the sports I work in, but 85% of sprints were curvilinear nature. Okay, so that all, of, all of a sudden we know, okay, this is also preparing guys for game demands. That was Graham Morris, and you're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. If there's one thing that has completely changed my approach to supplementation, it's been finding performance herbalism. Herbalism is different than your typical supplements, particularly because herbalism works by harnessing the power of nature. It involves using tried and tested, high-grade, well-sourced herbal compounds to make a difference in your energy, strength, boost your hormonal system, and improve your overall vitality. That's what today's sponsor, Lost Empire Herbs, can bring to you. Whether it's through Shiliajit resin, which has been highly recommended by many coaches for improved strength, mushroom tinctures for immune support, combination packages such as the Phoenix Formula, which is one of my favorites, Lost Empire Herbs has the supplements that will help you in achieving your performance training goals. If you want to check out some of my favorite herbs, you can head to lostempireherbs.com slash justfly and use the code JOEL15 at checkout. That's J-O-E-L-1-5 at checkout for 15% off. Lost Empire Herbs is a great company and I hope you get a chance to check them out. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. Thanks for tuning in. I'm excited to welcome back to the show guest Graham Morris. Graham is an athletic development coach and leads the rehab program at the West Tigers of the National Rugby League. Graham has many years of experience working in professional rugby, as well as consulting and training a variety of field-based and combat athletes, including world and Australian champions in Muay Thai. In athletic performance, it's very helpful to understand and engage with many iterations of movement and sport practice many ways to move, to train, to lift, to uh, play. On today's podcast, Graham will be speaking about his time and experiences in the martial arts and what that has offered him in his traditional role in strengthening performance and rugby. And he'll also be talking about some aspects, uh, more expansive aspects of speed training, such as lateral speed, curvilinear running, different variations of curvilinear speed. Uh, We'll be talking about ideas on staggered stance lifting, inertial lifting, and much more on the show today. It was wonderful talking to Graham, and I'm excited to get this episode rolling. Let's get to 396 here with Graham Morris. Graham, it's great to have you back on the show, and I know you spent uh, quite a bit of time uh, competing, training uh, in the martial arts, in your time kind of between uh, strength and conditioning, or typical strength and conditioning jobs, or team sport jobs. Tell me a little bit about that, that experience and what you learned from it. Well, yeah, I think last since last time we chat. Um, I was living in Melbourne at the time and the back end of COVID, um, like the funding of the position I was in was cut. And then I basically, uh, all the gyms across Australia were kind of like opening, closing through COVID and all that. And I kind of, that's when I streamlined a lot of things online and I, what I basically did was just packed up everything, uh, threw it in storage and I flew a one-way ticket to Thailand. And, um, obviously I, I'm, uh, avid, um, follower of combat uh training i had an injury back in the day probably what 10 10 12 years ago where i had a lot of nerve damage in my leg from my pre-existing back injury and surgery didn't fix it so a lot of running demands was kind of cut down for me so but i I was introduced to muay thai kickboxing and i started getting into that into my early 30s and so when i went to thailand i um i trained quite a bit for that and for, for five months i was there and I was put in a, um, a fight team after a week um, with a lot of professionals. It was some really, really highly ranked fighters. And I basically trained for three, four hours a day, most days in the humidity, the heat of Thailand, um, the grueling training. And I only I ended up having one fight of it, like in a big stadium, big stadium fight, which was a pretty cool experience um, at the age of 39. So, but uh, yeah, I was training really, really high level guys, and I learned a lot of things about performance that uh, I probably didn't really think about as a strength and conditioning coach while I was doing that. Um, I can go into that if you like. Um, yeah, that'd be great. Um, yeah, so like for what I, what I, training for a, a, a specifically like a fight or something like that, I think um, specificity is just so important. You need to get good at your sport, um, and you, it's really, really uh, noticeable. When you're, when you're training for a fight because 
um, nothing really else matters. <laughs> so yeah. a lot of the stuff that you're focusing on is like, can you strike better? Can you attack better? Um, so I think, you know, as my buddy Key always says, like become a PhD in your sport. Um, so you really, really want to focus a lot of the energy in on that. And then everything else is kind of um, implemented around that. Um, but I would say that over there, what I really found out was that the training environment is so so important um the level of coaching that you have around you can make such a difference a huge amount of difference uh are you, are you getting taught the correct things um are you getting caught, taught the correct tactics do you have good training partners um if you get from training partners is so and so important the people around you um are they challenging you are they pushing you are they uh, assisting you becoming better every single day um, so when I, when I come back to sport, I always think, are we having a training environment that can sort of lead to success? Um, you want, you know, you want to produce a culture there, but that's not only really demanding and, you know, um, upholding standards, but it's still enjoyable to come to every single day. Um, and when you're training like that every single day in the heat, we're training three, four hours a day. Uh, it's really, really, really hard on your body. Now I'm not going to say you're overtraining, but. You're, you're training to the point where sometimes you're looking at it and you're like, this training is not um, looking that great. I'm not striking well. I'm really, really fatigued. But on the, on the back end of that, you're not going to stop because you know you're preparing for a fight and you're trying to get better. And in your head, you can't stop because you know that this person you might be competing against is putting that extra working. So, you know, outside of that, it's so important just to get things like sleep right, your nutrition right, um, your hydration right, um, the ability to recover between sessions has become so valuable. And it's something that I probably didn't previous to that, like I just cared more about the training side of things and, and you know, going to scenarios like that, you'll realize how important lifestyle and health is for overall performance. Um, I mean, outside of that, like it's always interesting when you're sparring or you're training with guys on a daily basis and you look at these four co-actives that we always talk about in sport being a technical, tactical, psychological, physical, I think that, you know, it's, it's important as an athlete to kind of find out what your rate limiter of performance is because like in combat, you'll find guys that are so skillful that they just, they're more superior. But then you'll find two guys that are very skillful together and the guy that is more gen- physically stronger or is better conditioned. Um, um, will win, or you might find someone who's not as skillful, is not as um, potentially not as conditioned, but he's producing the right tactics, he's doing the right things at the right time. And then psychology behind everything, you know, some people will might be so drained before they go into an actual fight, or um, the the things they have around them drains their energy. So that when they're actually in the fight, uh, they don't have much energy. Um, so I think looking at from an outside perspective, highlighting what is important um, and where your rate limiter is, is what's been really increased performance. Yeah, the four coactives. Um, it's been a while since I had heard that mentioned on this yeah. podcast, but yeah, it's, yeah. It's, so, it's so huge. And yeah. so you're almost, it, from what I gather, in working with the martial arts and, and just as you were talking, you know, you, you think about like the maps you could, you know, you know, the graphs you could make with the coactives or like yeah. the, the, the cross chart and the dots that's on a different place, you know, of, of your different skill level. but how would you say, or are you saying basically that in like fighting or martial arts or things like that, like there can be almost a bigger spread of why someone's good than perhaps like a team sport um, or uh, a more common sport, or is is that not quite uh, the, the case? I'm not. Sh- I'm not sure if that's the case, but I think that if someone's really superior in one aspect, it can highlight. It can be highlighted more in individual sport like combat. Gotcha. That makes sense. It just it's are you saying like it's in combat it's easier in, to see in, in because it's a, yeah, an in individual a team sport. sport. Yeah. It might be made up and different, you know what I mean, different aspects. But whereas an individual, like if you have a real limiter in performance, it's gonna be highlighted probably pretty quickly. Yeah, it just it just shines brighter versus mm. and I think yes. versus an individual sport versus like my background, track and field. <laughs> you know, there's mm. not it's not like that in terms. Yes, there are the coactives and things like that, but it's. A, I think it's a little bit different than something where there's more strategy and tactics and things like that, like yeah. martial art. And, yes, and yeah, it would make sense that 
yeah, there's nowhere to hide in one-on-one versus a team sport. You can kind of maybe hide in the shuffle a little bit, so to speak. Obviously, you have your skill coach and things yeah. like that, but maybe- And also, like, I think there's different scenarios that can occur many different times that you might not know that's your limited performance. Mm, yeah. Because each opponent could be different. Like, you don't know what you're going to get, typically. Things change straight away. Whereas, like, as you're talking about track and field a lot of the time, it's a race. Yeah. Um, it's probably it's probably less out- side influences that are going to change that scenario yeah i believe i should say that it's, the, not, the tec- it's probably not as chaotic yeah nature. the technical the technical is absolutely their track but the tactical i don't even i mean there's you know racing like the mile or whatever how my, my race yeah, yeah. tactics gonna unfold but like outside of that there's definitely not nearly as much of that as in team sport yeah. and things like that it makes me think too like in you know, and I know this is, uh, we're talking a little bit more about the physical pieces throughout the show, but I always am so interested in, in looking at the whole picture, you know, and it makes me think too, I wonder if like, like skill coaches or like the coaches who are spending more time on the one-on-ones, um, it makes me think almost, if you like look at martial arts, it's one-on-one and someone wins and someone loses. And there's also the consequence of it being a combat, like you get hit. And it, it makes me wonder if I almost I almost feel like maybe skill coaches could learn something from the way martial arts are put together with the co-actives and how they set up their one-on-ones in consequence and learning from, you know, said activity. It's just, it's interesting yeah. to think about. Yeah, it is interesting. And I think a lot of these, these really high-level combat coaches probably don't even, they just do this um, oh, yeah. without even thinking. That's what they're exposed to on a daily basis. Um, and it probably comes very natural to them. Yeah. Yeah. In, um, in, for, so from your perspective, I, I know now you're doing athletic performance, like rehab type work. Um, is there yep. anything, at least from a mindset, uh, from spending that time in the combat world, coming back now working in rugby, uh, back in, I guess, a role that was more like what you had before? Is there anything yeah. that's, you know, just, just the gears in your head turning a little bit differently uh, after that experience? Yeah. I think, no, as I said before, I think like creating an environment that um, is challenging, mm. upholding standards. Um, like martial arts are very disciplined, um, but on the flip side of that, you still want to have, you want to push the culture and that, and um, but you still want to make it enjoyable. You want guys to rock up every day and uh, enjoy their, their their training because that's their job. Um, you know, just like any, anyone else, you, you want to enjoy your work. So, how do you foster an environment where we're we're pushing standards but still have an enjoyment in the process? Um, so, I think that's something really important, and just try and really like, um, I guess teach younger athletes and all that and the importance of health or looking after your body um, and all these little things that can add up and create big things down, down, down the line. Yeah. Because you're looking for that. You're just looking for one percenters, always looking for one percenters. Mm. So where can we, where can we achieve this? Do you yeah. think that the, like the, the combat sports to having weight classes also plays into that, like working with, because you mentioned like nutrition, taking care of yourself. And if you don't have necessarily like a fine weight class, I imagine there might be a little more wiggle room uh, in, yeah, yeah. in other sports, you know, so maybe that yeah. constant added consequence as well, just to tie that in. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's why I like, I think you're like in professional teams now we have a lot of people have like standards, right? Body fat mm-hmm. um, standards. That's why like a lot of these conditioning tests, are they highly specific towards the sport? Probably not, but it tells you, you have normative data that tells you you're either fit or you're unfit. And all the players know what a good time is for a certain, like in rugby league, we use what we call a 1.2 kilometer Bronco time trial, which is a 0 to 20 meter return, 0 to 40 meter return, 0 to 60 meter return, um, five times continuously. It's 1.2 kilometers, maybe it's 29 shuttles. Um, but, you know, it's a very basic um, fitness test. Is it specific to our sport? Some level of specificity, but probably not. But every single player knows what a good time is and what mm-hmm. a not a good time is. And when they return to training or when they come back, you know, they know what the standards are, whether they're fit enough or they're not fit enough. Um, and from there, from their body fat testing and all that type of thing, we can say you're up to standards, you're not up to standards. So um I think that's the kind of things that you have to do to try and you know push this level of professionalism and make sure guys are uh, up to scratch and ready to perform. Yeah, I, it's interesting. I guess part of it too is I think that which you also perhaps can't put into words. I know for myself, like just spending time with uh, back when I was at Cal, working with the swim teams, which are always up at the top of the NCAA. There's just something I think your intuition picks up with how things should be, you know. 
and that you just start to feel like the next setting you go into, you just kind of carry that with you. And maybe some of that almost goes unspoken in a way, but I think it also bears the importance of, you know, working with different uh, teams, sports, levels yeah. of talent, things like that. Yeah. Yeah. That's definitely, it probably depends on the people around and the, the connection you have within the team um, and things like that, driving that environment as well. Yeah. Um, because, yeah. Yeah, I was going to ask you, you know, I know we mentioned this a little bit before we we pushed record, but I did think it was interesting, the um, like the crossover. And I know Kier's, or one of last talked about this back in his rugby days, but like introducing grappling or working with grappling. Yeah. And I had no idea that in rugby over there, they have contact coaches who do all that stuff. And yeah. I just, I find it, um, I feel like that'd be a really fun job to be the, you know, the contact <laughs> coach. Well, <laughs> well, first of all, to be a contact coach, it's probably pretty well known. You have to have few screws loose. <laughs> um, they're all absolute maniacs. Um, <laughs> uh, well, look at the top level. Most clubs are going to have a contact coach. Perhaps if you're at a lower level, you're if you're a strength and conditioning coach, you might have to introduce some levels of that grappling type stuff, which can be beneficial. But at the higher level, you're going to have yeah. uh, a contact coach in. And as I was saying before, like at the beginning. It's a little bit more, the beginning of a preseason, it's a little bit more raw, uh, a little bit more general in nature. Um, you're building that body armor that's going to, you know, lead into the competition period where you're trying to develop uh, the body armor around the shoulders and neck. Um, and basically, it's a lot of collisions. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of sweat. There's a lot of sore bodies. Um, and as I develop that, it's probably getting... There's still a high technical element of that, but it's getting more specific as they go throughout preseason. I mean, it's not my job. We have a really good contact coach, but um, yeah, as as we're getting to, to preseason now, the contact on our, on the field is a lot higher. So then the contact in the in the contact sessions has to reduce and becomes more technical, uh, more probably uh, getting guys um, systemized, teaching players how to work together in defense um, to try and nullify the attack. Because the contact load on the field is probably increasing, so you kind of have this seesaw of um, throughout the preseason, leading into in season, um, and then during the competition period, a lot of that contact stuff will drop off because guys are just trying to recover from the previous game. You have this period of recovery where, I mean, you get a couple of ga- uh, depending on the turnaround of, of the games, and you might have a couple high training sessions, and then you, you're basically looking for that readiness so that you um, play um, at a high standard for the next game day. So the, the, the contact throughout the, the competition period at training will dramatically drop off because you get it in the games. Yeah, I feel like the... But yeah, the, the first four four or five weeks, if you ever get a chance to look at a contact session, you have to go over. It's on my bucket you. list after talking to you. It's on my <laughs> bucket list to go to one of those like general. Well, I was just thinking too, like what a fun thing. Cause I mean, like you said, on the lower level, it is something like a strength or physical prep coach could, you know, general roughhousing, general contact type stuff. And I, I was thinking about like, I was like, is it like really intense red Rover or something? Or like, I don't, or like a mosh pit. Like, yeah, there's a, there's a whole <laughs> bunch of different things, but. You know, it's, you know, what I say, get um, comfortable being uncomfortable. And I think yeah. that's probably definitely something that happens in the, the first four or five weeks of a preseason for a lot of the contact sessions, for sure. Yeah, it made me think a little bit. Like, I also had to kind of smile in the sense of, I think when we just think of, like, fitness or play, um, I, we, long story short, I remember when I went to, so Rafe Kelly, um, who's been on this podcast a number of times, I went to his Return to the Source uh, retreat and one of the things we did in one of the introductory sessions was like um it was kind of like a mosh pit like no one was taking each other out but it was like just a big group of people and you just run through and you kind of run into people try not to you know it was more mixed ages and groups you weren't, weren't trying to hurt anybody uh, but, yeah. but just yeah. just doing that kind of thing is you forget how yeah. much fun that kind of thing is you know and yeah. i think we, we get kind of far away from that sometimes yeah and like don't get me wrong it's like it's not all about just being brutal with strength and being violent and things like that it's there's a huge skill element of it, and you'll see this because the the strongest guys in a weight room aren't the best wrestling or grapplers necessarily. And I can say that 100%. Like one of our strongest wrestlers, grapplers, is not the strongest guy in the weight room, and he's far from it. Um, but he has that different type of strength um, that you know some people call it farm strength, or you know 
It just has that grapple strength. Um, and is it a high, high, high skill element to grappling and, and strength work? I can even say that from my, my point of view from a Muay Thai. In my gym, we have a, uh, a Thai, a Thai athlete who has had over 300 fights. Okay. So he started fighting since he was seven. He's had 300 plus fights and he fights at 70 kilograms. And when I clinch him, I'm a hundred kilograms out myself. I find it very, very difficult. He's so sneaky. He's so tricky. <laughs> I swear to God, I tried to get him many years ago to do a bodyweight split squat and he nearly folded himself in half. <laughs> he hadn't been introduced to these type of things, but he had the, the technical ability of clinching and grappling. And he was just so strong in those positions. And, but if you try to put a bar on his back or something like that, he's never been introduced to it. It'd probably fold him in half. So, you know, skill is definitely specific. Uh, sorry, strength can be very specific in nature. Um, and there's a high things like, uh, wrestling, clinching, uh, tackling and things like that. People think it's a lot of brute force, but no, there's a huge, um, skill element to it. Um, so you have that skill acquisition side of, and, you know, physical properties that relate to that skill. Yeah. I saw one of your videos you had posted in your fight training. It was, I think it was called like the dominator or something. And I, I, I oh, it's yeah, hard yeah. to describe. I, all I could describe, it's like, yeah. it's like a bike handle that you push down to the ground and it's connected to some so, weight stack. <laughs> yeah. Honestly, that's, that's actually that piece of machinery is, um, in most rugby league. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah, it's a very, like it's a piece of machinery is probably developed for a lot of rugby league teams. And yeah, it's kind of like a handle where you're, you're pulling it towards you. Um, so you're using a lot of back strength and uh, pulling strength and conjunction from your legs. And then you have to rotate your core around and push it down. And to be honest, it's probably, it's, I wouldn't say a specific in any type of way to grappling, but it's probably the opposite way you should be doing it. Hmm. But the muscles used hmm. um, probably transfer over to that type of movement. Um, it's back in that connection from the ground up through your, uh, your legs, through to your core and move your upper body. Today's podcast is sponsored by Team Builder. You can get a free trial of their training portal software by heading to teambuilder.com and you can use the code JUSTFLY for a 30-day free trial. Sign up today with Team Builder and see what they can do for you for your training programs and your team. Yeah, thinking about too, like the difference, I think that keys into, you know, in many ways, I guess it's like, well, what makes strength specific on the field? What's perceiving and reacting things but like especially when you're fighting or grappling your sensory environment is so much more like you feel like where did your opponent's weight shift and you instantly have to figure out where to yeah you know react it's so it's a uh, reactive would be the best way i could put it and i i, I say yeah. that too because i feel like that's like one of my st i actually haven't been in combat sports i would love to at some point but i one of my strengths has always been like a reactivity like if there's something to react to and then apply force to i'm a lot better at that than i am just like uh, the like max my maxes at the power lifts are not very good compared to my yeah. reactive ability yeah but like if you put yourself in a better position than your opponent um and you're you know say you're in the weight, same weight class or it don't even have to be but if you're in a better position to produce force and they're off balance then you'll probably win most times yeah and that's why there's such a large skill element to it can you get the right leverages can you get the right position to produce power and then put them in positions that um they can't really produce power as well. Um, and that's when the, the skill element comes down to it, the body awareness, the reactivity, getting in correct positions. Yeah. When we, when we had talked last time, Graham, you were getting into, or you had talked a little bit about, and I think this was the end of the show, but doing different like oscillating uh, lift training or yeah. oscillating movement yeah. and mentioning how that was really uh, beneficial for kicking ability. And I was curious, I think you had, I don't know how long you had do, been doing that work mm. at the time, but I was curious in the time since we last spoke, because I've done a few podcasts on oscillating strength and uh, yeah. performance, and I'm a big fan. And um, yep. have you done any more? Is that something you're doing now outside of even fighters with the rugby group? I'd be curious how you're integrating that or what your thoughts are yeah. in that time since. I do, I do it with a lot of my, some of my, um, my combat athletes that have um, a high level, which they're already quite well... Um, they have a pretty good um, level of strength training already. Um, so they already have the ability to produce force. They probably have that experience. So I'll introduce that with them, especially during things like uh, bike camp where I don't want to overload them with huge amounts of load. Uh, so you can use a lot of lighter loads in those positions. 
And as you said before, I think the ability uh, to relax and contract um, really quick, make someone twitchy is really, really important. Um, I do a lot, a lot of my online clients as well, field-based uh, athletes, um, but I, I only sprinkle it in here and there. Mm. Um, and then I think, you know what's pretty cool? I like, uh, is it Matt McInnes, the, the yeah. plus bios guy? Like, I like how he does it with the deep tier options and you're just oscillating out of those positions and you're yielding and overcoming in those, those positions, um, especially those, those deeper joint ranges. I think that's really important. And it's probably something I'm going to start doing like I don't run the strength program um, at the rugby club where I am now, but like I do a lot of the high end return to play um, uh, for the rehab side of things, and I think that definitely could have a place there. Um, the back end, just just ice putting a little bit of icing on the cake at the back end there, putting that in. Uh, the thing is, as well, but you also got to also understand like with some of these types of methods when you're in a team scenario as well. It's got to fit in with the holistic nature of what all the other yeah. coaches want as well. So, you know, you don't always get what exactly what you want. Um, whereas if you're doing something individually or when you're just a private coach, you can be a bit more, you can explore a bit more with these things. You might have this intuitive nature that you think this works. And if your athlete has trust in it, it's easier to implement. Whereas in a team scenario, like multiple coaches are going to have input. And then, you know, that might that certain thing might not get a tick of approval, mm. so you might not get to have the full sack. If that makes sense, yeah. So, but yeah, so but I, I definitely think it has a place. Uh, um, just sprinkle it in there here and there um, at certain times of the year, and I think it works really well for that return to play as well. It's something that someone getting those deeper joint ranges, um, isolating that position, getting stronger in those positions, teaching the body how to switch on, switch off. Um, and the problem is with these type of things, it's like probably not a whole bunch of research behind it. But, you know, when we do these things within our training, without, within our team environment, these are case studies. And for me, that is research um, in my particular group of athletes that I'm working with. Um, maybe it's not a meta-analysis that's not going to get tickable approval from everyone else, but my training within my bunch of cl uh, athletes or clients that I'm doing, for me, that's research. <laughs> yeah. Oh, if that yeah. makes, if that makes oh, sense. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's, it, yeah. it develops your intuition. Um, I'm definitely on board with that. And like, I certainly think that counts as research in my book. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I was going to ask, um, yeah, with the, the oscillating. So with, you mentioned like, uh, like team sport, like when it, an athlete has like a bunch of coaches and they're already doing like so much ex varied explosive work that probably is a little bit hard yeah. to track, you know, too, like the extent of it. I almost wonder if, like it's almost like the safe route from if we're talking the strength side well hey let's just do the general work here and not try to you know it's like the more specific things you try to or the bigger piece of the pie you try to grab in some ways it's almost safe a good home base just to start with the general like do you know what i'm saying 100 percent. yeah I've, I've what i found is as well joel over the years that I, i've probably got back to more basic work especially for let's like, say in the rugby league populations because they're getting so much specificity on the field and I found this myself, Joel, where even when I was training for my fight, is that um, general training, general weight training, um, just going through just traditional movement patterns um, and being probably doing less more, like oscillatory work and all, all, all these different power works and all that, but just doing basic strength training was kind of like the glue that was holding my body together. Mm -hmm. and, and I think you'll find that with a lot of the athletes as well. Can you get strength, strong just for general movements? Can you produce a force for general movements? Like if you're doing the basics like um, very, very well, that's probably like 90% of it, yeah. I would say, especially for like a, a um, sport like rugby league, okay? Because at the end of the day, yes, they need to get stronger. Yes, they need to have body armor, <clears throat> but they need we just need to keep them healthy so that they can yeah. go on the field because the, the intensity, at our intensity of training, we're trying to, you know, meet game demands, if not train higher. So that we have an advantage over our opponents. So that's really, really important that this, we have this general, um, uh, these general methods to, you know, basically give us more vari variability outside of the spe specificity of training. Um, and I think it's the glue that keeps athletes together, um, makes them more resi resilient, robust. And it's probably one of the most important things of like the, the, the weight room, I think, or, or sports. Yeah. It's, 
I think that once you get outside of the weight room and realize all that can be done outside from speed, power, just even move, basic yeah. movement competencies, it's, it's interesting because I think creativity is important and we all want to be able to take things to a creative level, but it's yeah. like with time and place, you know, because sometimes yeah. the best place for the creativity and really expanding that dynamic is simply on the field <laughs> or in track yeah, for sure. as I've gone in track, it's, it's, I'm going to do this on the track. I'm going to find creative speed adaptations on the track and mm. you might not need to do all the, I mean, sometimes you can, when you hit a plateau and things like that. Absolutely. Yeah. But so well, much of what's done is in, yeah, on the field and dynamic work. Yeah. Well, even look at like, say change of direction in team training, like yeah. in sports, like initially you might be like, um, so I know you want to talk about cutting and things like that, yeah. but initially it might be very close in nature because you have like we preseason, we might have 45 athletes in the field and that could be like a young 17 year old coming through the ranks who's never been, you call, I don't know if you want to say it's correct mechanics, but he might not need to be taught that because he's yeah. just a freak. And, but on the flip side of that, you will have a poor mover who doesn't understand this and you have to teach him these different types of tools. So yeah, you might have a closed environment at the beginning, um, like dosing in these, 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 these closed chain or sorry, closed, um, change direction drills, but you want to get to the point where you, they're exploring all these different drills on their own terms and they're perceiving what's happening in front of them. And you have that exploration and training. So I think it's just about layering, layering different things from the beginning of training to where you want to get to and have an end point and goal. That's your exploration within the drink, the drills. Um, with your, your agility tasks um, that could be game specific, might not be, could be just reactive in nature. But at the beginning, you probably want to um, give them this less intense, closed um, setting just to teach them the mechanics first so that also at the beginning of, uh, say, preseason, a lot of guys might have, might have been exposed to this in the off-season. You don't know what they've been doing, so it's a safe way to, to, to bleed that in and then kind of layer these different stresses on top so that you kind of get into this exploration stage out in the field and guys are working what, what works for them. You know, everyone has different movements that work for them. Um, it's just bandwidth of guys will have bandwidths of what's optimal, what's not optimal, what's, what's good and what's not good. And, you know, exploring those different things is really, really important. But, um, to do that fun stuff, you have to do some of the other stuff before that, I believe. Yeah. Like, that's my small thoughts anyway. <laughs> yeah. What are, especially with working with higher level athletes uh, or even, or even low, whatever you want to speak about here yeah. specifically. But I think like you said, like some athletes are just good movers and yeah. those athletes who are good movers and you know, they play a lot of sports, had a lot of free play and they're just good athletes. It's a good question to ask. Do you really need to do any special work teaching them how to move on the field? Probably not in those cases. Probably not. No. But like, Within a team, you're going to have yeah. these yeah. high, high level, but then they're the ones that you see on Instagram. They see the ones that people post up, but for every one of those, is a very, very poor mover. So how do we get this, the whole team as a whole pro progressing forward? So this might not be um, important for the innate movers, but it, it will be for maybe the bottom half of the team. That might be yeah. really poor, uh, important. But on the flip side of that, you, you know, when we're in the weight room and we're doing like, um, we do specific prep every single day. So the athletes before um, we start we have individual prep that they'll be working towards their, what they need to mobilize, what they need to do to get ready for the field. And then say if we have a max velocity theme or a change of direction theme or an agility theme on the field, we're going to ta target certain things before we get, go out in the field. So maybe, you know, strengthening physical properties in relation to that skill might be important for one of these really freak moves, you know, giving them some more, you know, foot strength or um, some reactive strength in the lower limb or all these type of things that, that might have carryover. So we're trying to get, you know, it might be, they might need the skills, but you can put them in more scenarios on the field where they can analyze, react, that may help them. Off off the field, we can potentially work on, you know, maybe, as I said, lower limb strength, um, some power, some rate of force development, um, whereas the guys that aren't innate movers, we might need to teach them the mm. posture. We might have to go back to a wall drill to teach them what a shin angle is. Um, 
you know, we might have to do some like skater jumps or something like that to teach them, okay, this is how you orientate your body and um, this is how you're, you're pushing into the ground is going to have an opposite reaction of creating horizontal force or whatever to create space to get away from the defender. So I think you're looking for all, all these different elements um, for a team sport, which may be on the field, in your warm-up prep, individual prep. Do they have the mobility to get in and out of these positions? Um, then you might have some plyometric stuff as well. And you're just, you're just slow cooking each of these processes um, with the aim that oh, throughout a, a season or pre-season or a career, all these little things are going to add up um, and build a better athlete. Um, and, you know, you, you don't always know how much change you're doing, but if you look at – I was just thinking the other day, I was looking at certain guys, and I was like, these guys are moving well, like compared to pre-season, like the beginning. And it's just slow incremental changes um, every single day, just bleeding things in and out, you know? Like your plyometrics type thing, we might only do three, three, two, three minutes every single – before every field session. And um, I'll do it, we'll do it on the mats um, because we've got some really heavy athletes. Doing it on the ground is probably not that mm -hmm. great for them, um, especially if you're doing a 25-kilometer training week which involves high speed running change of direction contact load um you know all sorts of things that are tough on the joints the ligaments the tendons but bleeding in just these little bits every single day like doesn't yeah, hurt yeah. the system um and it teaches them the skill like before they had no pre um pretension at all now they do now they can cycle their foot up when they do a hop before they couldn't no, is everyone perfect no but it's, you're slow cooking that process over over a period of time, and, and you're not breaking anyone in the process. Um, so I think that's, yeah, I think things like that add up. They all add up. All these little things add up. You know, yeah. So over time, so and I think that's really important in a team sport. Yeah. So in a way, integrating, and I, I think we talked about this a little bit last time, and then um, I know it was one of the questions we already kind of covered, like how do you integrate some of these athletic movements for somebody who's already doing tons of movement? And like you said, you yeah. it's like slow doses of it. I, I know like microdosing or the idea of like just small doses of lifting has been talked about for a little while now, but I, I don't know if, I feel like maybe someone said it at some point on this podcast before, but like, yeah, micro, microdosing, little athletic pieces as well especially when they're doing so many other movements in their sport 100 percent. that's like it's definitely key i believe for team sports like as i said we will have a change of direction acceleration based um day in our warm-up the other day might be max velocity um curvilinear stuff um the other two days might be a bit more and within that we also have um things that are a bit more specific to each um position as well because the positions within our sport slightly differ um then the other days might be kind of uh, like more conditioning-based, energy system development-based in nature. This isn't for preseason, But then you can have these different themes before we even go out in the field. We don't waste a warm-up. Um, we're looking at these um, the physical properties, even the positions and the postures that might be needed for these things, and we're bleeding, microdosing this every single day. So we might have a circuit of, of five stations, um, say, for change of direction. One might be a hurdle drill when you're going in and under and you're trying to, like, open up the adductors one might be a wall drill where you're learning just like okay this is the shin angle that you need to do apply force but it's also preparing the cards the adductors for more intense stuff when we go out we might have a skater jump where we're getting in and out of these positions um then on like an acceleration day we might have stuff like switching drills teach the athlete how to switch because they don't know how to switch properly creates pretension of the foot when they're about the land we might do this on different lakes different surfaces um you know we might have like different drills where we're trying to get hip extension before knee extension um then we might have like some some bear crawls or something like that because we know they're going to be contact later in that day we want to teach body so there's a lot of general athletic abilities that we can kind of bleed in we've got some specific stuff that we can bleed in but um we're just dosing this in every single day so that all these little things add up yeah and it sounds like those types of drills are they're relatively low level in the grand scheme of things it's not like hey we're going to go do 20 depth jumps or something like that they're no, all, no, no. they're just movement or more movement oriented than they are like power oriented. yeah yeah and you kind of want to it might be some potentiation might be some med ball throws or something if it's a speed day or whatever 
but so that when they go out, they're there already, um, they're wired, they're ready to go. So then you can get straight into your, you don't waste too much time. You're not given a huge amount of time when you're running a speed or agility program in team sports because, you know, the, the skill acquisition and the tactical, especially this time of preseason for us, we're getting ready for trial games, that is, um, takes precedence. So you want to try and bleed this in quickly so that when they get out in the field, they're ready to go. Um, what's also important is like you might be doing like a speed or agility or a change of direction, but it's really important that this stuff has um, intensity, um, has energy because from after this period they're going to the head coach or they're going to another coach and if they're low on energy and they're not ready to go that next drill might suffer so you need to make sure everything's working everything's firing everything's going well so that they're going to the next drill and then that you start off the training um in a very good manner because the, the beginning of training can set up the training for the rest of the session um if that makes sense. Yeah. What, um, you, 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 you can't waste any part of the training. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah, just everything seamlessly being efficient. And so with, with all that, um, like the movies, I've seen you do a fair amount of curvilinear sprinting. Uh, is there any key concepts there or key things you're looking for in setting up, setting it up or things you're looking yeah. for the athlete to be able to accomplish there? I think so. The main man, I think, for curvilinear stuff is that, um, I hope I get his name right. Albert, Alberta Filter, Spanish guy. Okay. He's got some of the amazing research out there. So I've saw a lot of like the, um, like a lot of stuff from him, just like in terms of why, what's more the, the kind of the systems that I've put in place. Um, but we know that curvilinear linear running is different to straight line running and we know it's different to change the direction because it's different to straight line running because it's a lot slower. You have that, that the body, the trunk angle is um, a lot different. Um, and we know it's different to change the direction because it's, it doesn't have a, uh, a braking force. It shouldn't be braking. Um, and we also know that it challenges the tissues differently. So, you know, the outside leg might target the glutes more, the inside leg might be more adductors. I'm trying to remember. Hopefully that's right. Mm -hmm. We know it different limbs, the targets, targets the hamstrings in a different way. It, it targets the foot. And the, um, the lower limb calf muscles or, or gastroc or psoas in different ways. So, stuff for a start, that's preparing our guys that's making them more robust, um, in these different positions. But then uh, I believe that in, in a soccer game that they analyzed, um, and I'm not saying this is necessarily true in rugby league or in sports I work in, but 85% of sprints were curvilinear in nature. Okay. So that all of, all of a sudden we know, okay, this is also preparing guys for game demands. So it's specific to what's occurring on the field and putting guys in these positions to start with, I kind of put my, I call curves or I call it arcs. I don't know if it's the correct term. It's just what I've made up. Um, and for me, curves are a lot faster in nature. Um, and arcs is when you get that large trunk lean and the diameter of the run is a lot bigger. So it's a lot slower. So I might have those arcs. I might put them on a change of direction day because they're bordering on the point where some athletes at the beginning aren't necessarily controlling their trunk and I'll start cutting with their feet and I'm trying to get rid of that, teach them how to um, create, explore those movements and, and get that trunk clean and shin angles right and be able to accelerate through that position rather than, than breaking side cut type motion. And the other day might be more curvilinear, curvilinear or nature where they're going for a lot quicker and it's kind of at the beginning, I might, um, you know, we might just put this, we might start off a little bit slower um, with a couple of turns on the curvilinear stuff. Then it might become, okay, they got to do four turns. Then we're going to challenge the system a little bit more. We're going to take a little bit wider and challenge them through speed even more. Then we might do it with your hands crossed across your shoulders. Next step might be hands across on your head. Then we'll do it with a rugby ball in your hands. Yeah. And at each corner, you're punching it to the sides. So not only have we trained the movement, you know, we, we have its principles like, um, uh, what's his name? Not friends, Bosch, the other guy. Um, John. Oh, the robust running concepts. Um, uh, Pryor? John Pryor. Yeah, John Pryor. Yeah. Sorry. So, sorry, John. 
is actually yeah. top, top lad. Um, those robust running principles where you're testing the system under pressure, perturbations, hmm. something is, is going to be very similar to what's occurring in rugby or team sports. So we might bleed those in for the first four weeks of preseason um, in those those controlled matter. And then like after so after our general uh, preparation period, uh, we're into a specific period now, I kind of separate the forwards and the backs. Um, and I want my forwards just to be able to run through through uh, walls and still have that control. But my outside backs, they're on the edges a bit more. They need to have that curvilinear stuff in nature. So now the curves are becoming a little bit more contextual in nature. So we might like even just a, a Monday, sorry, yesterday, Wednesday, we had um, like guys running through curves at speed and then they have to beat the fullback. So they're coming in again, slung out of the curves and then they have to beat a defender. But then off that, we might have two attackers coming through two different curves. So they're hitting the curves, one's got a footy, and then once they enter the field of play, there's a two-on-one scenario. Mm. Um, but once they hit a certain position, you've got another defender that's scrambling across to help the other defender, so it becomes two-on-two. Two. So all of a sudden, they're coming out of this curve scenario. It's contextual. Um, they've got a ball in hand, so it's specific to the game. You've got two defenders that are creating intensity. Um, and we're, we're putting these um, positions of arcs and stuff and we're making that contextual to the game and we're putting under pressure and perturbations that are key concepts of robust running. So, but we start off very simple, teaching us body mechanics, teaching them to do it at speed and then we start layering stress as we go along and then we add decision making to it because um, it's not always, in our game, it's not always the fastest person and it's the guy that can make good decisions at, at high speeds so is really, really important to have the skill and the ability to um, finish off high-end plays at, at fast speeds. Can they turn the trunk, catch the ball, make pass, see a defender, mm -hmm. defender cut? All these different things are really, really important. But as I said before, you know, a lot of my, I didn't say this before, but a lot of my key concepts are simple to, to complex, low intensity to high intensity, extensive to intensive. Um, these are key principles that I have across my training block. Um, so whilst exploration and things like this are important, I always begin at the, the beginning and I, I layer these things on top and which gives variability across the time. Because if you jump, sometimes if you jump too far ahead, they'll lose mm -hmm. what they needed in the first place. And as we said before, some of those innate movers don't need this. They could probably go straight to the top, but a lot of these yeah. other guys are going to miss out on this. And we're trying to push the whole team forward to increase performance. So. Yeah, look, I, I think curling stuff's awesome. I really, especially for like the outside backs that need it in their positions. Whereas the forwards, I have, we, we, we even now at the moment, we're doing like acceleration based stuff where they're punching different, um, they might start off with ball, punching balls across the body. They have five kilo plates, they have 10 kilo plates. And even I can't believe it. Now we've got aqua bags even, um, the last couple of weeks, whereas they're, they're punching the aqua bag at five meters, at 10 meters, then they're throwing it through um, five meters, trying to hit a target, and then they're sprinting five meters, um, an extra five meters. So they're, they're learning to accelerate um, under these different pressure. Um, there's a loop, they're kind of racing each other to a degree. Um, but these are scenarios that they're going to be putting into game like scenarios. So, um, you know, it's not just about being quick be able to change um, directions really quick. you got to have all these other things in place as well. Today's podcast is sponsored by the Plyomat. The Plyomat is a jump testing device that allows you to instantly receive ground contact times, jump heights, reactive strength measurements, and more in your training populations. It's easy to use, accurate, and affordable. And an awesome feature that I love about the plyo mat is it easily allows the connection of not just one mat, but you can string multiple mats together for use in things like multi-hurdle hops and bounding situations. I absolutely love the plyo mat, recommend it. And to check it out, you can head to plyomat.net. That's P-L-Y-O-M-A-T dot net. Yeah. yeah. Back to what you were saying about the creativity and just that kind of general idea of creativity that's outside of the walls of the gym and where my thinking has changed it's just what you described the creativity that goes into the curvilinear running and not just i think sometimes people would think about that and just think oh it's 
it's only like robust in decision making, right? Which it is. I mean, it's really helpful, but it's also like you mentioned the muscle contri- uh, contribution because I think if you yeah. have your lifting hat on or your physical prep hat on, now you're thinking about okay, and like you just said, that outside leg more glute, it's more propulsive. That inside leg has to absorb. And it's has to. It's like almost overspeed for each leg in a specific job, and mm. and and I hear all these. Um, and I've seen it myself. I mean, when I warm athletes up playing soccer for a twenty yard dash or a thirty meter dash, they run faster. There's a lot of reasons for that, but I also think that that inherently cutting curvilinear running the the job of the legs, like yeah, we, we I it's not just technique. It's also development and. If you have, you can have a basic strength program, but then you're doing all this explosive work creatively and legs get overloaded. And now in addition to what you're doing reactively, I think it's also just a really wonderful physical stimulus. And the one thing I think about too, I haven't done this with a team sport. Um, I did a podcast with Dave Karen about high jump and curve running and how uh, the difference between radial running and curve running. And I think, you know, some of it might not be... um, there, you know, there might just be different adaptations depending on what your exact activity is. But I'm very intrigued by also curvilinear running that runs like a conch shell, like a Fibonacci, where it actually tightens as you get in the curve. You, it like tightens up as if you were running like a, a route and you had to make that curve tighter at the last second or like a figure skater. Like they have to yeah. go and make it. And I, I would be, cur- I, um, I'd be curious, like the applicability of that for a, a team and field sport athlete. I, I've been doing that with high jump practice. Uh, high jump practice lately, usually our curve running drills, we just run around a straight circle. I did it for years. Then I talked to Dave and mm. I made the circle more of a big, long oval. So like part of the yeah. curve is slow and easy and then it gets real tight. Yeah. And then you have, you know, this yeah. like, there's, but your creativity, what I'm trying to say, I'm not trying to get carried away, but I'm saying is coaches, even for general, your creativity can really go crazy going and in a specific way for on-field movement exploring all the different shapes like you had said you'll do a a wider curve a wider arc one day a tighter arc i just think there's so many awesome applications a way to mix all this together and we that that two on one drill with the scrambler coming in the variability there is like the arcs is just placed differently each time you know and i'll put the defender in a different position scrambling across all these type of things the ball might start in a different position and you have all these different scenarios and guys are learning different movements um I remember I used to have, I used to do it with my, um, on my, oh, sorry, just with my private clients, we used to do a bit run circles, like run circles fast as you can. And then you say change and they got a break, yeah. try and redirect force and go the other way. And then you say, like, they keep going, he goes change and they got to change again. And the, I remember filming it and looking at the positions they get put in. I'm like, this, this is insane. Mm-hmm. Like they're getting put in crazy positions. Even those arcs, you look at the positions that they get their trunks in. Their trunk and they like the position, like you know, it's like that's sport, yeah. Like, yeah, like in a seat, you take a still photo, and like this guy is like 45 degrees. Like, how did he get himself in that position? It's awesome, yeah. yeah it's uh, even what you said too, like the, the idea of the repetition without repetition idea in motor learning, where every rep yeah. you do is a little bit different than the one before, and it's just it's cool to think of how many unique high velocity, high force repetitions you're racking up. With all the different yeah. ways, using a, a curve as a medium, you know, like a curved run as yeah. a medium, and it's the same in our specific prep as well. Like we might, you might use like different different tools. Like you might reach use plates, different weights, plates, different implements, and you're getting that you know the same movement, but it's just in different. You have that variability of using different tools, and um, you know, you think hopefully that's making a more robust system to those different positions. Yeah. yeah. If you have, um, if you do have some of those, I've seen a few of your curve running videos, so I know you have a few sitting mm-hmm. there on Instagram, but if you have them, yeah. I'll put them in the show notes. Cause I think yeah. I, I'm a visual. I've got some too. team stuff. Yeah. I've got some team stuff. I'm probably not allowed to share, but I've got some individual stuff with online clients, but the context stuff, I wish I'm not sure if I can, but, uh, yeah, just, yeah. I'm just, I'm <laughs> but, a, yeah. one of the things, the thoughts could, that crossed my mind actually. I can send to you, baby. Yeah, I was thinking, yeah. what a cool training day! Like, let's all the general contact stuff. This is for anybody, like a bunch of general yeah. contact stuff, and then a bunch of like general, like different curve run races. Like, like you were saying, like what a diverse stimulus, you know, and and yeah. powerful stimulus that would be. So, uh, whatever you send me is cool. Otherwise, I know that you have some yeah. stuff on your Instagram. I'll throw up there. That would be awesome. Yeah, yeah, so. okay, okay. 
Uh, cool. Well, no winding down here, um, I did want yeah. to ask you, these are just some more general physical questions. I've seen you sure. do a little bit more like in the realm of uh, like staggered stance, like squatting, like kind of mixing up the way you play with the stance, things yeah. like that. Tell me a little bit about uh, how you're approaching squatting with that. Uh, a lot of stuff I do myself because I've got a really, really bad back, terrible back. Like I've got, I got nerve damage in my calf from an L5S1 um, disc that's shot to pieces. Um, so I have numbness in my left foot. So I look, I like a lot of the staggered positions upwards my back. Um, so in terms of the, the unilateral stuff, I, I play around with that myself. Um, you know, I just do that because it makes me feel good, to be honest, mm -hmm. and allows me to probably lift. Like if I use, if I do heavy, heavy squatting, I can belt squat really well, but back squatting, putting a bar on my back will destroy my back. Mm -hmm. And I've got a couple of other clients that are like that. So we're lucky we have belt squat, but like sometimes just having those staggered stance positions can really um, offload those positions and it doesn't irritate them. Um, so I just play around with that myself. But, you know, I, I, you know, so always people want to argue about the bilateral versus unilateral. And I think both have their, their, their places for sure. I'm probably not doing anything groundbreaking in regards to that. But like I, I my own stuff, I also play around with like staggered stance with yeah. support. I think. That kind of provides the best of both worlds, which is really, really cool. Um, I think the bilateral stuff really can, it's good for the nervous system sometimes. It teaches the body to, you know, overload the nervous system and potentially produce more force. Uh, whereas, you know, your more unilateral stuff, you're going to target more stabilizer stuff that's probably needed for you change the direction tasks and just being resilient and robust. Um, and then, you know, I've gone down that, that route. I didn't even know if you call it unilateral, but but like looking at different split squat variations and you look at, you know, your shin, your shin position and you can look at restoring, you know, the heel, heel, heel rocker mechanics, midfoot position, toe off positions, kind of stuff like I've done both Alex Effers course and yeah. he talks about that. David Gray is a, I love the stuff he does and he always talks about his different position, you know, of heel position, getting into the midfoot, um, getting to the forefoot. And I think you can do that with, more of a staggered type and, you know, unilateral or probably more staggered type positions that allows you to, to get that foot pressure and feel certain things, control it down. You can feel tissues in different types of way. And it's probably um, exploring, as you were saying before, there's different tissues um, and giving your body some variability. And sometimes, you know, you probably, you, when you're doing a movement, you might just bypass it, those, those parts of the movement. And you didn't realize you're weak in those positions until you do it slowly and, in those, those type of positions. Does that make sense? I'm not sure. Yeah. I've just gone off and it's complete yeah. <laughs> uh, I, yeah. I know what you're getting at. Um, you know, it is funny you mentioned with, uh, you said you're thir you were 39 last year. Are you 40 now? I'm 40 now, yeah. Oh, yeah. Hey, same as me. <laughs> nice. Because um, I actually, um, last winter was, um, I've, I've been a little bit more seasonal in my own training and I went in a, just a very heavy bilateral strength phase because I hadn't done something like yeah. that really pushed it in a little while and it, it, the winter went well and then in the spring i wasn't even doing a workout that was like that substantial but after it the strength workout but then the day after dude i woke up and i don't know what happened to my back but i couldn't do a normal sprint stride for almost two months and it, oh. but it's a, in a sense so i think it was just something that was a little bit of a layover from the heavy strength phase yeah. of the winter and just you know combined yeah. with a lot of mileage but this mm -hmm. winter i'm still uh, doing the heavy strength phase but it's just it's in the form of now everything is like it's with the trap bar an open stance trap bar but it's all staggered yeah. curtsy lunge type stuff and actually i which is amazing honestly and i actually don't like the term curtsy lunge because i think people hear that and they think it's like soft yeah. it's like dude you can crush your glutes in a curtsy oh lunge. yeah I, it's just be called and, something else you know and joe I, I i feel like uh when you get to your 40s like us and you've done all that the unilateral stuff and you've done all the, the, the bilateral stuff and that you start experimenting with these staggered positions and you're like, mm -hmm. I haven't filled this type of uh, burn before. And it's a little bit novel stimulus as well because, you know, I, I love training more Thai and to be honest with you, I used to live in the weight room and just love lifting weights, but now it's like, oh, I want lifting weights a bit boring. So mm -hmm. like within my own training, I'm playing around with these different things. I'm just trying to feel, you know, like different contractions and different, areas and just playing around my training my weight training for me is just a bit of exploration and 
and can I get something out of this? A lot of the time, it's probably just junk. Sometimes it's something I take a valuable way and I can kind of put back on my athletes. But like, I kind of use myself as like a little experiment. Yeah, no, I hear you. Yeah, that's all the time. I mean, yeah, we're both 40. Like how many reps have we done of, of all the lifts, right? And so for me, so often I love like the rep without rep of just like a staggered stance, hex bar, squat or whatever, like anything. Yeah. It's just fun. Yeah. It's fun to feel too. Yeah. Like sometimes you, you hit a little interesting little track between the stagger. You're like, man, that torched my glutes in a way that I wasn't expecting, you know? Yeah. The stag- like a stagger stance trap bar, uh, deadlift was torture. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Torture. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's I, cool. I've seen you do some stuff with the the flywheel as well, a like K box. Um, curious what yeah. your thought is for that, either for yourself uh, or yeah. for the athletes you work with. How you've taken that? Well, I kind of play. I played around with it myself because I was just doing some experiments. I was trying to increase my um, striking power, and for me, like striking power is probably you get it from lower limb. So outside of the skill acquisition element, and you're just looking at the physical properties, you probably want to have like. Um, powerful lower limbs and powerful through rotation so i used a lot of those movements with the the k-box because i feel like it overloads the eccentric system more um i do use it with some return to play guys as well um now because it's really hard to put a whole team for a k-box like mm-hmm. it's impossible oh yeah like, it's a lot unless you have like eight k-boxes yeah <laughs> sitting around but and not and then outside of that a lot of your like online clients won't have access to a K-Box, but so I use it on myself and with some return to play guys. Um, I'll tell you one thing I really, really enjoy about the K-Box. Um, and it's because if you do it properly, it, it absolute, you're, you're getting forced down so fast. You have to reverse this eccentric, you have to have this large braking force. And then you're trying to override that with a fast propulsion. But what I will say is, you know, when you're doing normal lifting, normal lifting, you're trying to get this perfect technique, right? With the K-Box, when you're doing it, you get forced out of that technique. Like, you you can't, it's nearly impossible to, to have perfect technique. You're getting pushed outside on these bandwidths, on the edges. Um, it's also different because there's no sticking point. You have to produce force the whole time. So you're trying to force yourself out. And I, I was kind of thinking about this the other day. I find it, it's probably similar to what happens on a field in some aspects, you know? Like, you're going to be sent on the edge of your bandwidth in different positions. Um, the repetition is always different depending on the scenario. And I find the K-Box pushing in, into these positions like that because it's just forcing you all over, all over the place when you're trying to do it, especially when you're doing it properly with a lot of, a lot of power. Yeah. 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 One of the things I've been thinking about a lot with it, I mean, really the last, I guess, five years, but especially this past year, uh, Keith Barr was on the show talking about like low jerk isometrics or basically like tendon issues. If there's like a big jerk on the tendon that and you have injury issues that could be provoking it. And I, it's like what you said, it's, it's interesting. It is like a constant force tool. So like the, the jerk of the movement is not much. I found it to be really helpful for like, um, for knees, especially, especially like the squatting mm-hmm. type variations. That's been my, probably my, my major use of it. So I, I feel, I was just yeah. thinking in like a team sports scenario, I, like you said, it's hard to, Hey, got 30 guys, <laughs> one K box, yeah. you know, but like, yeah. Oh, we, we got the K police, which we can do some, some oh, yeah. movements on. Um, so we got two of those. So you can get guys through that quite quickly, but on the, on the K box with, with the, the, um, taking on and off the, uh, the, what do you call it? The vest is a, a bit problematic, but with the return to play guys, yeah, that's pretty cool. Oh yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, well, hey, and wrapping up our chat today, Graham, is yeah, there anything, uh, anything you're up to, any projects uh, you said like training online or where people can find you, anything you want to mention here before we well, get out of here? Yeah, look, I actually, I've got a thing, I'm not, not sure how many people here at Combat this is, but I've got a, a thing called Fight Club. So it's pr- predominantly probably Muay Thai athletes, kickboxing athletes, few MMA, boxing, and it's just like a on-curing subscription where I just update the programs and things like that. But it's, it's kind of um, priced at a really cheap and uh, convenient way for these guys because these a lot of combat athletes, they, they do a lot of, um, I guess, uh, sacrifices on their working hours to be able to do this. And it's not always a great, huge amount of money um, in the trainings, but so, sorry, with the competition. So I try to make something that was cover all aspects there. I'm outside of that. I do a little bit of online training, but uh, man, I'm just preparing for, um, for the competition period in the rugby league. So... I, didn't, I don't think I even mentioned I work for West Tigers. So um, we're going to try and 
have a big improvement on what happened last year. So it's been really, really exciting. So the majority of my energy is going into that. In a couple of weeks, we go to New Zealand for a quick camp and we play the New Zealand Warriors across there. And then a few weeks later, as I was telling you before, the first two NRL games this year are actually in Vegas. So any of you US listeners, if you um, like watching guys run at each other, um, big collisions, watch those first two games in Vegas. Um, and you'll be introduced into the game of rugby league. Yeah. Will you be there? <laughs> are you Are you going to be in Vegas? No, and I'll, no, I'm not going in that game. Um, we actually got a first round bye, which was not perfect, but um, I wish it's probably safer for me to not be in Vegas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll keep you away from there. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. That, I don't, good luck to those teams taking those players across. They're going to have to take them off site somewhere, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they'll figure it out. <laughs> As an Aussie coming to Vegas, it's what you see on TV, you know? Like, all these guys <laughs> will see it on TV. Um, you're trying to keep them switched on for the game because... I think as an Australian, you always look at Vegas and you see it. Oh, look at this place. It's kind of as a kid growing up. Yeah. You know, some of these big US cities before, like you experience that. It's like what you see on TV. So when you go there as the first time, it's really exciting for people here. Yeah. Might be challenging, <laughs> a challenge in and of itself. So, uh, nah, I'm sure they'll, they'll all be well behaved yeah. and hopefully, um, it'll open up the game for a lot of people who watch. Yeah. yeah oh for sure yeah i think it'll be really welcome here i mean i'd love to watch a game myself but i'm all the way over in cincinnati it's a few hours away from uh flight yeah, time just watch it on tv yeah you have to watch it on tv yeah i'll, I'll message you before it, before it happens yeah please do i i love it that'll be that'll be awesome i'll definitely try to find a way to tune in so well thank you so much graham it was really great catching up with you and yeah i, I have a few of these uh, like cross world uh conversations lined up so i'm glad you could make time in the morning and we could make this connection yeah happen. but I'm, thank you so I'm, much apologies because i took a little bit of time to uh to make this happen yeah but, um actually i have been busy trust me <laughs> yeah all good glad it could finally happen so i appreciate it man. yeah awesome thanks Joel. Thanks for tuning in to another show. I appreciate you being here and I'll see you next week.